0: We will be in the book of Acts, chapter 26, if you want to make your way there, Acts 26. Have you ever wondered why you were saved and left here? I mean, why were you saved and not just immediately taken up to heaven? Why, why do we have to put up with this world? And If you're paying attention, it's getting pretty crazy out there, it, it's scary, Maybe your own life is scary, you're suffering, you're struggling, you just want Jesus to come, amen, so do I, but it sort of leaves us asking the question, why are we still here? It's certainly not so we can, you know, get our sort of of get-out-of-hell-free card and then just kind of live our lives however we want. That's definitely not the answer. Scripture talks about God's will for our lives being our sanctification, whole-life worship, That we would love each other, that we would grow in the trust of God, that we would live for His glory, and all of those are true and vastly important subjects that we definitely should be focusing our lives on. But if you think about it, we will be perfectly sanctified, we will worship perfectly, we will love each other perfectly, we will trust God perfectly, we will live for His glory perfectly in heaven. But there's something that we have been called to do that is limited to this life that we will not be doing in eternity. And that is that we have been left here and commissioned by our Lord to call out the world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in love. Yes, we are to grow in sanctification, we are to worship God, and we're to love each other and trust God in all things for however long God has us here, but in all of that we are called to preach the gospel to this dark world. And we see a beautiful model of this in Paul in Acts chapter 26. So before we jump in, let me let me sort of set the stage for what's happening in this chapter. The Apostle Paul was arrested two years earlier. He had been accused of sedition by the Jews, in other words, trying to topple the Roman government. That carried a death sentence. And he'd already had a trial with Felix, the governor of Judea. He never settled his case, couldn't couldn't come up with a charge, so he just kept him in prison for a couple of years. Felix was then succeeded by Festus, whom he again stood trial before and saw that it was heading, heading in the wrong direction, and so he appealed to have his case tried before Caesar. But in two years, Paul's Jewish accusers were unable to show any credible charge against him, and so Festus didn't actually have a charge to send him to Caesar with, and he needed one. So he solicited the help of the visiting King Agrippa II, who was knowledgeable about Judaism, and it seemed like a sort of a religious squabble that he didn't understand, so he thought maybe he could help him out. So Festus gathered Agrippa and many of the prominent people in the city, it tells us, into the auditorium that day, and Paul was brought in to give them his defense. So that's who's in the room. That's how Paul got here. Paul, a prisoner in chains, is brought before Rome's power brokers to defend himself. But as we're going to see, he doesn't really offer a defense. Really, he just preaches the gospel. So he begins the chapter by recounting the details of his conversion, and then we're going to pick up in verse 19, where he says, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the regions of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now I began saying, one of the primary reasons we are on this planet is to call out the world with the truth of the gospel in love. And I specifically chose the verbiage, call out the world, because of the confrontational nature of the gospel preached. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we're to be confrontational people out looking to pick a fight. We're to be loving representatives of Christ, not confrontational jerks. But it does mean that the gospel itself is inherently confrontational. That man is dead and blind in sinful rebellion against God, the punishment of which is eternal death and separation from God, and the only way to escape that certain judgment is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is offensive. That is confrontational. That calls out the world because the world does not want to hear that message. That's why Christ said in Matthew 10:34, "Do not think that I came to bring peace on Earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies will be the members of his own household." Of course, the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God, but often in the meantime, the immediate response to it is conflict, so that families are torn apart. Millions of people have been martyred over the millennia because of it. The world hates that message, yet that is the message that we are commissioned to proclaim. Which should make it obvious to us that there's really no such thing as living this life free of conflict if we are living to proclaim the gospel. Again, it's not because we're out looking for the conflict, but because the gospel gospel itself often will result in conflict. It calls out the world who loves the darkness more than the light. So as we study this chapter this morning, we're going to be reminded of three truths in fulfilling our duty to call out the world with the truth of the gospel in love. And the first is, calling out the world will be difficult and can only be done through God's power. It's going to be difficult and it can only be done through God's power. As I just mentioned, Scripture is very clear that the life of a servant of Christ is not one devoid of conflict, suffering, and persecution. Quite the opposite is promised to us, actually. Let me just offer a few examples. Philippians 1.29 For you it, it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice. John 15.18 If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. Living as a servant of Christ and fulfilling our commissioning to call out the world with the truth of the gospel is not fun and games. This is no joke. We are playing for keeps. The world and the God of this world hates the truth of the gospel, and we will suffer as a result of that hate. And that's why we can't live this life by relying on ourselves or any other thing but God's power, as we're reminded of here by Paul. Look at verse 21. Paul tells Agrippa he's under a death sentence. The Jews are ravenously trying to kill him, as, of course, they did throughout his ministry. This was nothing new. Wherever he went, the gospel went, and persecution and suffering resulted. So what does Paul profess to that room full of powerful people that he's powerful too? Look at all I've done. I've walked all across the Roman Empire preaching Christ. I've been beaten multiple times. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been thrown into Roman prisons. I've starved, yet I've continued on. You guys think you're powerful? Look at me. Look at all I've accomplished. Is that the message Paul was there to preach? No, of of course not. I don't think we would think for a second that he would say anything like that. But then I have to ask, well, why does it seem that we so often profess that to the world? Not by our words necessarily, but by the way we live our lives. Think about it. How much of our lives are about our doing? We make things happen with planning and effort. I mean, we're Americans after all. We we pull up our bootstraps, we work hard, we, we profess God, at the same time we profess our independent spirit through which we triumph. We just celebrated that, didn't we? Is that bad? Should we not be planning and working hard in our lives? No, of course not. Of course we should be doing that. We're not called to be you know, lazy and haphazard in our lives. That's not the point. The point isn't the planning and the work. It's who are we relying on. Is it us or God? Paul worked like crazy. Just read through the book of Acts. He never stopped moving and going. He was incredibly diligent, just pouring literally sweat and blood into everything he did, Yet, as he professed to Agrippa in verse 22, he knew that none of it was because of him. He didn't want to accomplish anything that was in his name. He only wanted to accomplish Christ's purposes through him. And the only way that was going to happen was by giving all he had, all the while relying on God's power and grace. Reminds me that the famous missionary Hudson Taylor who accomplished so much as a missionary to China in the 19th century. A wealthy man was meeting with him one day to kind of talk about this ambitious sort of ministry expansion that Taylor was planning. And when he came to Taylor's office, he found, you know, his office just had maps of China and books and notes. And he was kind of pouring over all this stuff. And he saw the man, he invited him to come in, and he suggested they start their meeting with a a prayer. And and the man said Taylor offered a, a very short prayer, something along the lines of, God, we're dumb sheep in need of your guidance. And then he said, he opened up his eyes and he just went right back to planning. The man was so overwhelmed by this, he felt like he had really witnessed for the first time what it really meant to live in faith. Plan and work hard, but realize every aspect of it is completely dependent upon God. It is going nowhere without Him and we shouldn't want it to go anywhere without Him. So don't stop working hard and living for him with maximal effort, but live maximally dependent on him and his grace, as the Spirit wrote through Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The second truth we find in fulfilling our duty to call out the world with the truth of the gospel and love is... Calling out the world means that we will stand and testify. Paul says in verse 22, Having obtained help from God, I stand to this day. As we just said, it was only because of the help of God that he was still standing that day. And upon reading that verse, my, my mind just immediately went to Ephesians six ten, Where we're told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might On the full armor of God, that you may able you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, and then it continues on into the armor of God. So how are we to go through this life as sanctified witnesses of Jesus Christ, calling out the world in the face of evil and darkness? Well, like we just talked about, it's not just relying on ourselves and our standing in our own power as just really tough people. But it's putting on the armor of God, God being covered in his truth, his word, his spirit, and then standing firm in him. That's how Paul was still standing that day, and it's how we stand, with complete reliance, help, strength, and covering by God and his word. But we don't just stand, but we stand and testify. Let me reread verses 22 and 23 again. He says, And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Through the power of God, we stand and testify to small and great, wherever we are, the offensive yet glorious truth of the gospel in love, and we're reminded once again, as Paul says, that part of the gospel is that Christ suffered. It's not only that he died, but that he suffered. And why did he suffer? As Paul said in verse 22: to fulfill what God said in the Old Testament was going to happen, that the Messiah would suffer on behalf of those he saves. Like it says in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. As the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to, as Moses holding up the serpent in the wilderness was a type of, as the Passover foreshadowed, Jesus Christ the Messiah came to suffer and pay the penalty for our sin in our place, die and be resurrected, conquering sin and death, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world and the only way to life and God." Paul is just such a brilliant example of constantly, boldly, truthfully calling out the world with love by standing firm and proclaiming the gospel. Throughout this entire chapter, including the the section we didn't read, he just gives this bold, clear gospel presentation over and over. But in that, we see a difficult reality. Boldly, accurately preaching the gospel in love does not guarantee it will be received. And we see two classic rejections of being called out by the gospel in Festus and Agrippa. First, as seen in Festus, the world may respond to being called out by accusing us of being insane. Verse 24, And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. This is so interesting, Paul's been going on for some time, and it it appears all present are just sort of patiently listening to him, until Paul says that Christ suffered, died, and was resurrected from the dead, and at the pronouncement of the resurrection, Paul's preaching is abruptly ended as Festus interrupts. It says he interrupted with a loud voice. He was incredulous. He couldn't contain his shock and his mocking at such nonsense, so he, he burst out, accusing Paul of having gone insane. I remember, Festus is a, a pagan Roman with no understanding of Judaism or Christianity, and, and according to his worldview, there was no category for anyone being raised from the dead. Yet Paul was a brilliant man. Festus had to acknowledge that. So the only way he could make sense of Paul spouting such madness was to accuse him of studying so much that he'd gone insane. He'd started to believe things that obviously couldn't be true. I think Festus's response is, Absolutely one of the greatest examples of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 in all of Scripture. It says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When the world hears the true gospel, often it will sound like utter foolishness. They'll accuse us of believing in fairy tales. I mean, how often do we hear how ignorant and uneducated Christians are? I mean, you'd have to be to believe in anything as illogical and unscientific as Christianity, they say. A six-day creation that some God spoke into existence. Noah sticking a bunch of animals in a boat. Some guy 2,000 years ago claiming to be God who was nailed to a cross. He supposedly rose from the dead and then somehow in all of that we're We're saved. And then worse, you guys believe that that same man one day is going to return in the clouds on a white horse in judgment? I mean, are you people serious? This particular rejection of the gospel has been going on a long time. 2,000 years ago, we see Festus giving one of the classic rejections of being called out by the gospel. You have to be an absolute idiot to believe that. I suppose you believe in unicorns and the tooth fairy then too. We should be prepared for that response. You're going to hear it if you haven't already. But what should our response be to that? Well, I think Paul gives about the best response anybody could in verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Notice Paul didn't get offended. He didn't start defending himself. He didn't argue that he's not insane. He didn't attack Festus as being the one who's actually the idiot. He respected the position and dignity of Festus in his response by appropriately referring to him as most excellent Festus and saying, actually, I'm not out of my mind, but I, I utter words of sober truth. That should be our response to this attack. We don't need to be offended or go on the defensive, but in love, we should simply just say, I don't believe in fairy tales. I'm not insane. I'm just simply stating the most sobering words of truth you have ever heard in your life. Because that's what the gospel is. It might be mocked as foolishness, but in reality, it's the exact opposite. It's the most sobering truth anyone will ever hear because our response to it depends on where we will spend eternity. And that's the most sobering subject anybody could ever ponder. People can and will mock the gospel and call it foolish, but the sobering truth is once they've heard it, they're responsible for their response to it, and their eternity is staked on it. But there's another equally common response that we see this time in Agrippa, and it's the second way the world might respond to being called out, and that is by deflecting and dodging the truth. After responding to Festus's mocking, Paul immediately turned to King Agrippa and said in verse 26, For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Paul just lowers the boom here. I love this. In a room full of important people, as a prisoner in chains, on the heels of being mocked, For preaching the gospel, he turns to Agrippa and says, You know I'm not insane. You know what scripture says. You've heard all about Christ, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Those weren't secret things that took place in a corner somewhere. This is not new information to you. And then just throwing the full weight of his preaching the gospel on Agrippa in front of everyone, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. What incredible boldness. That is calling out the world in love. But it's also often the scariest part for us. I mean, we might interact with people and love them and be missional and so on, but at some point we actually have to open up our mouths and preach the gospel by confronting people with the truth. I was recently speaking with someone who was telling me about a guy they worked with who was going through just a particularly terrible divorce, and this guy was really shaken up by this, and he was kind of divulging this stuff to my friend and obviously kind of seeking help. And my friend was pretty shocked by this because he was not that kind of guy. He'd actually kind of been antagonistic to Christianity in the past. But, you know, often when people's lives are falling apart, they, they're kind of searching. So what did my friend do with this, this open invitation? Well, he shared how, you know, he really tries to be a good husband and, and a father but then he told me he, he intentionally did not bring up Jesus Christ for the gospel because, you know, he thought it was just kind of cheesy to say, well, you know, the answer to all your problems is Jesus. And then he followed up by saying, you know, I don't, I don't really have the gift of evangelism anyway. You know, I, I love this guy, and, and he's, he's a great Christian man, but, oh, man, that has nothing to do with the gift of evangelism. That has to do with what we began with, the reason we're on this planet, and that is to preach the gospel. And the last thing that is, is cheesy. That command is not only given to the gifted, it's given to every one of us. But as my friend admitted, and I think we all can relate, he didn't give the gospel because he didn't want to be mocked, he didn't want to be thought of as lame or cheesy. God brought this person into his life to give him the the one thing he really needed, which was the truth of the gospel, and he punted. Guys, don't don't punt. Don't make excuses. Don't be ashamed. You know, we all have. We've all been there. I understand. But let's take a lesson from Paul and not be afraid to put people on the spot. With the gospel and to do it in love. And see, that's the irony of the situation I just gave. The irony about that, that interaction is my friend actually was not very loving toward that man at all. Encouraging him to be a better husband and a, and a father sounds good, and, and it is important to meet people where they are, but we don't stop there because that's, that's a far lower level of loving. The greatest way we can love somebody is to preach the gospel so that they can be saved from eternal death into life. That man didn't just need to learn how to be a better husband. That was just a symptom of, of a far deeper need for his needing eternal salvation and having a dead heart made alive. We love people in Christ, but the greatest way we love is by preaching the gospel so people can be saved. And that's exactly what Paul did with Agrippa, which really put Agrippa on the spot. If Agrippa responded to Paul's direct question by saying he believed the prop the prophets, then he would have to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. Paul had laid that out convincingly. <clears throat> Excuse me, but if he rejected the prophets, he was going to have problems with the Jewish nation, and his political career was going to be severely impacted. So, what does he do? Well, he dodges and responds in verse 28 where it says, And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. He dodged the seriousness of Paul's question, essentially by turning it into a sarcastic joke. You know, got out of that one, at least for now. And many will respond to the sobering truth of the gospel in a similar fashion. They'll make light of it. They'll make a joke of it. They'll evade, dodge. They'll do the tango around it. Anything to actually avoid being confronted with the truth of the gospel. Again, we should be prepared for that. But again, we ask what our response should be to that. And we see Paul's response in verse 29 where he he says, And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you... But also, all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. Paul's response was, was that not just Agrippa, but that everyone in that room would believe. He, he desired that more than being freed from, pit, from prison. That was what he lived for. He truly desired them to be saved. So when Agrippa parried his direct question... Again, just as with Festus, he didn't get angry or offended. He just said, whether it's a short time or a long time, I don't care. I just pray that all listening to me today would be saved. See, that's the, that's the heart we all should have. He realized he doesn't do the saving, so he didn't need to get angry with Agrippa's response or Festus's or anybody else for that matter. But he desperately desired all listening to be saved. And because of that, he was willing to continue risking mocking and death for it. And in that, we also find the irony of the gospel. Paul, the lowly prisoner in chains, actually had everything in Christ as he was eternally free from the chains of sin and death. All those listening had all the world could offer, yet actually really had nothing because they were in complete bondage to sin and death. Although they mocked and dodged the gospel, Paul knew the truth, that they were blinded by the darkness. So he followed up the truth by lovingly personalizing the gospel, turning this scene upside down and saying that he wished they would realize all they had was really nothing and that they would desire all that Paul had, which was everything in Christ except the chains. That's Christian evangelism, boldly speaking the truth in love, in the love of Christ with complete willingness to be made expendable so that some might be saved. And that leads to the third and final truth of living our lives, call out the world with the truth of the gospel and love, and that is our calling out the world might bear no results that we can see, but our commissioning never changes. We might not see any results, but our commissioning never changes. Let's finish off the chapter, verse 30. And the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. As we've seen, Paul couldn't have been a more faithful witness of Christ in these circumstances. He couldn't have more clearly, boldly, and lovingly given out the gospel in a very, very intimidating situation. Yet, at the end of it all, all, his personal situation did not change. Once again, Agrippa and the others concluded what every judge of all of his trials concluded. As verse 31 says, This man isn't doing anything worthy of imprisonment or death. For two years, no one had been able to come up with a, a genuine charge. Even Agrippa said he might have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, but he did. So Paul remained a prisoner with an indefinite future beyond his going to Rome as Christ's witness, as Christ said that he would. But he was not rewarded for his faithfulness by being set free from difficult circumstances. Nor does it appear a single person was saved by his preaching that day. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it seems like everybody just sort of got up and left. In fact, it doesn't seem anyone had been saved in the previous two years during Paul's arrest and imprisonment. It would have been easy for him to just get discouraged and give up wondering, you know, why should I just continue wasting my time preaching the gospel to a bunch of people who don't want to hear it? But he didn't. There may have been no tangible results. There may have been no change in his personal situation. But there also was no change in his command from his master. He was still a slave commanded by his master to preach the gospel, and so he did, and it's no different for us. <coughs> Excuse me. My church family, I think this is a reminder that we all need right now. I've had conversations with many of you, has been referenced a couple of times already this morning. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, our country, our state, it, it's bonkers. It's bonkers. I mean, it's, it's scary how Christians are being targeted by Muslim terrorists and it's reaching our shores, not, not to mention racial tension and cop targeting and all that sort of craziness that's going on right now. It's scary how, how in our country the, the powers that be are, are really doing their best to no longer allow Christians to have a seat at the table of public opinion. The winds are, are definitely against us in a way that we've never experienced in, in our country, and all signs are pointing to that only increasing in the future. Christians are being jailed for refusing to bake cakes for same-sex weddings. Like Pastor Kevin mentioned last week, a bill has already passed the California Senate that according to Biola University, in the name of protecting LGBT students, faculty, and staff from discrimination, at least the way they define it, essentially it would eliminate what would constitute a Christian Christian higher education. It looks like our state is trying to eliminate Christian colleges and universities essentially. Do you think it's going to stop there? Right now there's a federal lawsuit against the Iowa Civil Rights Commission to stop the government from censoring the church's teaching on biblical sexuality and forcing the church to open its restrooms and showers to members of the opposite sex. The government Censoring what can be preached in a church. This is not New York or San Francisco. This is Iowa. Try and express a Christian worldview on the campus of virtually any university in our country and see what happens. Because of these examples and so many more, it can just be easy for us to see, you know what, the entire culture has turned against us. Why risk it? Maybe we should just sort of hunker down somewhere and pray for Christ's return. We definitely should shut up. No one wants to hear it anyway, and who knows what will happen if we actually open up our mouths. We might be arrested for hate speech. Or, or maybe in your own life, there's that person that you've given the gospel to so many times, you can't even count. You faithfully have, have prayed for them, you desperately desire them to be saved, and, and they're no closer to believing in Christ. It's just easy to become discouraged and think, man, what, what is the point? This is not working. That person is never going to be saved or this country is changed forever. It's only going to get worse. I don't know why I should continue. I don't know why we should boldly preach the gospel like you keep saying this morning. It's not working. It's too risky. If you feel that way, take heart from the example of Paul. I want to talk about a culture hostile to Christianity. Jews and Romans alike in the first century, whoever Paul was speaking to, his life was on the line literally for preaching the gospel. We haven't reached that point at least. And look at what Paul did. All those influential people gathered in all their pomp and cultural superiority, listening to Paul. Put yourself in in his shoes. Paul was brilliant. He, he knew Roman philosophy. He knew Roman culture. He knew what he was saying was making him look and sound like an idiot. No one wants to look ignorant, especially in front of the drivers of culture, especially when your, your very life, your future is on the line. W- would you have so boldly preached the gospel, or would you have just kind of kept quiet and towed the line? Because like I said, what's the point? You already know the outcome. No one's going to receive it in, in, anyway, and it's just too scary. Well, here's why. Because our job is not to be influential in this culture. Our job is not to be cool or sophisticated so that we can have a seat at the table. Our job is not to have a nice, comfortable life and then do anything and everything we can to protect that. It's not even our job to save that person that you have preached to and prayed to for over and over to be saved even though it looks like they're not going to. Our job, our commissioning is to faithfully proclaim the truth in love and let God take care of the rest because the truth is we can't control anybody's response to the gospel we can't make a heart dead in sin become alive through the gospel that's totally impossible for us that is a work that is a miracle of the lord as it says in john 1:12 but as many as received him To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Every person who is saved is a miracle as God raised that person from the dead and gave them life in him. Don't think for a second we can ever do that. We can't. That's not our job. But what we can do, what we are commanded to do, is to faithfully preach the gospel, Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We don't know who will be saved. We don't know what direction our culture is going to take. And we don't know what will happen to us if we preach. And none of that is up to us. But it is only through the hearing of the word preached that anyone is ever saved. And it it is our job, it is our calling to faithfully preach the word in love regardless. As we began with, that's what you've been left here to do. That's what you've been commanded by your master to spend your life doing. And now more than ever, As the clouds are darkening around us, our response should not be to to run and hide or just keep quiet. Our evangelistic methodologies might evolve. Our apologetics might change as our role in the culture changes. But one thing never changes. We must faithfully preach the gospel in the power of Christ, no matter the cost. No amount of earthly power, cultural influence, financial success is going to be in heaven with us. But you know what will be? People. People we preach the gospel to and God saved, even when it seemed like that was the last thing that would ever happen. Even if we never saw it in this life. And even if that doesn't happen, even if we're rejected as Paul was, and, and people we preach to go to hell, and we suffer as a result. We remained faithful, and we will be rewarded eternally by our king for being faithful to our commissioning, the reason we're here. What, what, a, what a glorious calling on our lives that we have been given, so just so far beyond any earthly pursuit we could dedicate ourselves to. I mean, we've all seen people sacrifice everything for career or fame or fitness, all of which is temporal and fleeting and of no lasting value. But that's not us. We've been given a commissioning on our lives so much greater than that. A commissioning that has eternal consequences attached to it. That is what we live for. So I implore you through the word, live with boldness and excited anticipation looking for ways to live your life to preach the gospel in love and the power of God's grace no matter the cost and trust Him. Let's pray. Our God, we so desperately need you and your word. And we're just so thankful that you you don't just leave us here to try and figure it all out or to do it under our own power. But you give us your spirit and your word and the power of grace. And God, we just want to live in that power now. I pray that every person here would be comforted by your word, that, that we would leave here in your power with just excitement overflowing to proclaim and live your gospel, even in difficult circumstances, to keep our eyes focused on eternity and to live for you. And we can only do this under your power and for your name. Amen.